This evening we'll be looking at First Kings, First Kings chapter fourteen, verses one through twenty. Excuse me. The word of our God. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Please arise, disguise yourself that they may not recognize you as the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. Indeed, Ahijah, the prophet, is there, who told me that I would be king over this people. Also take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what will become of the child. And Jeroboam's wife did so. She rose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. But Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were glazed by reason of his age. Now the Lord had said to Ahijah, Here is the wife of Jeroboam, coming to ask you something about her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus you shall say to her, For it will be when she comes in that she will pretend to be another woman. And so it was when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps, As she came through the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another person? For I have been sent to you with bad news. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because I exalted you from among the people and made you ruler over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been as my servant David, who kept my commandments, and who followed me with all his heart to do only what was right in my eyes. But you have done more evil than all who were before you, for you have gone and made for yourself other gods and molded images to provoke me to anger, and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam, and I will cut off from Jeroboam every male in Israel, bond and free. I will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as one takes away refuse until it is all gone. The dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Jeroboam and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field, for the Lord has spoken. Arise, therefore, go to your own house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he is the only one of Jeroboam who shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something good toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel, who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam. This is the day. What? Even now, for the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water, 
He will uproot Israel from this good land which he gave to their fathers and will scatter them beyond the river because they have made their wooden images provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam who sinned and who made Israel sin. Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to uh, Tirzah. When she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. And they buried him, and all Israel mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through his servant Ahijah the prophet. This is the word of our God. Oh, I'm sorry, last two verses there. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he made war and how he reigned. Indeed, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. The period that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years, so he rested with his fathers. Then Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would speak comfort to our hearts, even through this passage. We pray that we would have the eyes not of the world, but the eyes of your children, the eyes of heaven, to see and to understand and to take what you would give us from this passage. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. These 20 verses are an account of tragedy. Um, but ironically, the, the tragedy that the text wants us to focus our attention on is not the tragedy which our hearts want us to focus on. The tragedy of this passage from worldly eyes would be to hear of the death of a child, which is a tragedy. But the tragedy of this text is from God for us to hear of the blind unbelief that casts God away from us. That is the greater of two tragedies that God puts before us in this passage. It's hard to get our minds around, I think because the death of this boy seems uh, so difficult to us. And yet God in this passage is saying there's a greater tragedy, the tragedy of turning from the one living and true God. I, I planned on preaching this sermon a couple weeks ago, but kept getting sick or whatever. and So I, I didn't plan this to go with this morning's sermon, which was on apostasy, but there's a lot of overlap, um, and I assume God intended us to have them both today, since that's what's happened. So as we look at this text, we see Jeroboam, who is the epitome of apostasy for his age, turning away from the one living and true God, turning away from promises God has made. And, uh, and so as we look at this final passage about him, the first thing that God would have us see in this text is that you cannot fool God. That's what Jeroboam wants to do, isn't it? He wants to fool God. I think we see something of his view of God, his theology in this text, because he's approaching a prophet of God the same way you might approach a prophet of a, a dumb idol. Fool the prophet, and, and you can get away with whatever. He's not thinking in terms of a prophet of the one living and true God to whom God speaks. Remember what God said about Moses? I speak to my servant. And Moses said other prophets will come who will 
have my words put in their mouth. Jeroboam's not thinking that way about this old man. He's thinking that this old man, if he can be fooled, may come to bless his son or do something prophetic and miraculous to help his son out that he wouldn't do if he knew that it was Jeroboam who sent the message. Jeroboam's been receiving messages from God, and everyone knows that God is rejecting Jeroboam. But if he can just get his wife in there without the prophet knowing, maybe this prophet will work his magic and the sun will get better, or something like that. There's no thought to God, the one who sees all things and knows all hearts, being behind the mouth of this prophet. And so he sends his wife, and the wife tries. And what a powerful comment God makes through this prophet, saying to the woman, not only come in, why do you pretend to be another person? But notice how verse 6 ends. For I have been sent to you. With, and, and Aslan says, I called something like, I called you into Narnia. And, and Jill says, no, 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 we were trying to get here. And he said, you wouldn't have been trying if I hadn't been calling you. That's in essence what God is saying to Jeroboam's wife. You wouldn't have put this disguise on and tried to come to me if I, God, didn't have a word for you. I made you come here so that my servant didn't have to travel to you. Otherwise, uh, otherwise this wouldn't have happened. It's a powerful thought there in verse 6. You Not only can you not fool God, but all your attempts are just God's way of accomplishing his message and his purpose toward you. We, uh, we don't put on physical disguises to try to fool God, but sin often is, is something in which we try to fool God. Maybe we don't commit these sins over here, but we have the subtle sins, or we have certain places where we try to hide things away and think that God might not notice. He would notice if we were doing something really heinous and obnoxious over here, but I can have this harbored in my heart, and God won't notice. It's not a big deal when you compare it with, you know, Jeroboam. My sins aren't that big. Maybe God won't notice. And I think God, through this text, is saying to us as well, you cannot hide, and you cannot fool me. With anything that you think, say, or do, I have known it already. Before the word was on your lips, as David will say in the Psalms. Second thing we see in this passage is that you cannot turn from God and expect no consequences. That was this morning's sermon, for those of you who uh, heard it, in essence, was that uh, someone who has uh, made a profession of faith and then rejects the faith should not think that there are no consequences. And that's what we find here. Notice this emphasis on, I've given you David's kingdom. Notice how God describes David. It's a little shocking, maybe, if, if we've read Samuel before this, to hear that God says, my servant David, who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart, to do what was right in my eyes. And we say, what David is this? We've read about David. David slept with that woman. He killed the woman's husband. He lied about it. 
he uh, broke God's law in his pride. He numbered Israel when he was forbidden for do, from doing that as a king. He ignored the rape of his own daughter and, and then took the violence out on his... Didn't do anything about his son who'd done the raping. And then when the other son was driven to taking matters into his own hands, David uh, covers that up and wants to hide it away. He was a lousy father, in other words. How is it that God can say here that David followed him with all his heart? Now, I think there are two things we can note about David. Um, the first is that for all his sins, it appears that he never worshipped a false god and never worshipped through idols. The first of the commandments uh, in the Ten Commandments no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image. He might have broken all the rest of them, but he, he kept those two. At least as far as any of us can keep those two. But that alone wouldn't be enough to put him in God's favor. If you break any of the commandments, Paul says, you've broken them all. So the other important thing to note of David is that his heart was one that was penitent. He repented. He repented frequently. It was that rare thing that he went for nine months without having repented of the Bathsheba affair. That was his big backslidden state. All other instances, he was the first one on his knees in repentance. And in God's eyes, that's what sets him apart. David did what was right in my eyes. Why? Because he believed in my promises and he repented of his sins. And so he was right in my eyes. But having given that amazing statement about David, notice that God gives it in the context of saying, and yet, I've taken his kingdom and I gave it to you. You see what God's saying to Jeroboam? How in the world did you think that you could create new gods, create idols, rewrite how worship was supposed to be done, rework the entire religion of Israel, and that I wouldn't take it out on you for that. I took the kingdom away from David, and he didn't do any of those things. We cannot turn from God and expect no consequences, and yet the blindness of our sin is that we think we can get away with it. Others can't, but we can. And our, our sin will convince us of that in subtle ways very often. Jeroboam, Jeroboam just wears it all out on his sleeve. But we are tempted to think that we are the exception to the rule, and so we go on in sin so often. And we need to be like David. Be like David, on our knees, crying out, Have mercy on me, a sinner. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Verses 10 through 11 and 14 through 16, we see the consequences of turning from God. By the way, that idea of turning from God stated so strongly in verse 9, I should have emphasized that before. God says, you turned, uh, you have cast me behind your back. There's an interesting way of thinking of apostasy. We think of turning from God and walking away. And the prophets often use that language. But God is saying, Apostasy could also be described as throwing me over your shoulder. You've got your course, 
that you're set to go on. And if I get in your way, you will cast me aside. But God says instead that he will cast them aside, take them away like, like a dung heap, verse 10. If there's a pile of dung in your yard, which, which isn't as common for us, I realize, as it would have been for Jeroboam having a stable and all of that, but if you have a dog or something like that, and here's the dung heap, you don't pick up half of it and leave the other half. If you do by accident, you regret it later, every time, right? It smells worse afterwards, and you step in it because you think you cleaned the yard. But he's saying... I'm not going to leave you partially there. Notice the distinction. Because he did leave David two tribes. And those two tribes quickly turned into three tribes. Why? Because the Levites went over to David and his house. We've already seen that. So there you have three tribes. And then you have the elect from all the other tribes going to worship. David still had a remnant. And he would remain his people all the way. I mean, even in the, at the end of the Old Testament history, we have men like uh, Nehemiah and Zerubbabel who are of the line and lineage of David. They don't have the crown on their head, but in all other ways, they are ruling over God's people in a way that pleases the Lord. And of course, all of that anticipating and awaiting the coming of Christ but Jeroboam will be completely removed like refuse. There won't be anything left, a complete purge. We see uh, this in terms of strong language also, in terms of the dogs and the birds in verse 11. Uh, and I, I think we might get so caught up in the grotesque, literal nature of this because we will see God was being literal about the dogs and the birds and we're going to get to that in um in a later part of kings but we might get so caught up on that that we miss one of the big points it's a point i a point i've kept making and i'll keep making in kings i i suspect and that is the anticipation of eternity in the old testament histories stands in the imagery of being buried at peace in the land of promise. But God says of Jeroboam, you're not, your household will not be able to even be buried. Your descendants will be consumed by dogs and birds, and they will not be put in the tomb. Jeroboam's own bones are going to be dug up by Josiah and burned on the altar. We, we know that because the previous chapter told us that, uh, or, or rather, I'm sorry, Chronicles tells us that Josiah dug up all the bones of the priests who had served at that altar, and the last passage informed us that Jeroboam sent himself up as a priest. So he will not remain in the ground in the land of promise. He will be consumed on the altar, and all his descendants, it says, except one, will be devoured by dogs and birds and not have a place of rest, symbolizing the complete removal of his family from the covenant family of God, the nation of Israel. It's a strong statement. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life when they die, their bodies will rest in the grave until the resurrection. 
But all those who die out of Christ should not expect peace and rest, and they shouldn't expect the resurrection of the dead to be a good thing for them. It'll be a resurrection unto eternal fire, according to the New Testament. But with all of that, then we have an exception in verses 12 and 13, 18, 17 and 18. It's not an exception to the rule for apostates. It's not an exception to the rule you, you turn away from God and there's an exception who will get away with it. It's an exception when it comes to the house of Jeroboam. There is one who seeks the Lord. So we hear of this child. The, the word could be translated lad, and uh, we might wonder how old this lad is. And it's a, it's a term that's used not of infants, but neither is it used of older children. It's the in-between. Uh, it's used on the upper scale of Isaac when Abraham takes Isaac to the mountain to sacrifice him. At the foot of the mountain, they leave their servants behind, and Abraham says, the lad and I will go up. So that's probably preteen, right? That could be anything from, from uh, uh, Jackson's age up to Caleb's age in terms of uh, guys in our church, right? Could be as old as Caleb, but probably not any older than that. A teenager would have been a, probably a different word used because lad would indicate not counted as a man. And they were counted as men at the age of... 12 or 13, right? That transition at 13 with uh, what is now called the, the bar mitzvah. Uh, that We don't find that in scripture. But that's the idea, right? That, that transition into being man. So it could be as old as, let's say, 12 before that transition. Um, but then we find it on a much younger scale. Samuel, uh, when he is weaned off of his mother, 1 Samuel 1, that lad is then taken to Shiloh. And so it speaks of someone who's probably between 3 and 12. Uh, but here's the important thing. God doesn't mention any outward thing that this young lad did that pleased him. That's what all the commentators want to focus on. What was it about him that pleased the Lord? And so you get things, ridiculous things in commentaries like, he must have just had a real distaste for idolatry. Well, atheists have a real distaste for idolatry. That, that doesn't change God's feelings about atheists. It, it, it's, no, it's, it's a much simpler thing than this. Even if he was a very young boy and hadn't said or done anything that the rest of us would have noticed, remember what God looks on. He doesn't look on the outfer, outward. He looks on the heart. And remember what God sees that makes him pleased. What is the thing that, to use the language of this passage, would lead God to find something in him that he liked? Something. I'm, I'm missing that uh, exact wording here. Uh, I believe it's in um, verses 12 and 13. Verse 13. There's found something good toward the Lord. Good. What is found that's good? The, the only thing Scripture ever presents that God finds in the heart that he counts as good is faith. 
faith and repentance. And so here's this young lad, whether he's three or whether he's 12, this young lad who, uh, who may or may not have even said anything to his parents about, uh, about what he didn't like about their religion. But in his heart, he is faithful to the Lord by trusting in God, the one living and true God, and repenting of his sins before God. And here's this powerful thought about tragedy. God says why he's making the exception. He makes the exception because he loves this kid. Go back to that thought on tragedy. The worldly eye, we, we look at this and we would say with worldly eyes, and even our own continuing to be sanctified eyes, we look at a situation of the death of this boy and we think that is the what greater tragedy could that be a child dies unexpectedly what greater tragedy could there be but what is heaven's commentary on the same event in this instance god is saying it is the best thing that i can do for this boy isn't that shocking but God shows us why. Instead of a long life that ends devoured by a dog, with no memory, with your name removed from the people of God, how much better to die young. And look at the way God speaks of his death. To die young, to die at peace, to die mourned and grieved by all, no one else from Jeroboam's family is going to be grieved. They'll cast them aside. Move on to the next wicked king. This one will be grieved in this life, uh, mourned over in this life, and will be at peace with God for all eternity. And God says this is so much better than what could have happened to him. I think that should uh, draw us to reflect on our own grief, not to remove grief from our lives because grief over death is an appropriate thing for the believer. Death is our enemy, and Christ, Christ the conqueror, is one day going to finish that job by removing death from us forever. We have the promise of it now. We have the anticipation of it now, but we still see death now. And so it's appropriate to grieve over that brokenness. We read about the sin and misery of the fall in the catechisms. Misery includes death. And so grief is appropriate for us, but how we view it with hope springs from passages like this one, where God says, but you don't know the whole story. Here, God says, it's the best thing for this child. It's the thing that I do in love for this child. I, I think it should challenge us in the midst of tragedy as we think about how God works all things for good. William Cooper, and we're about to sing this, puts it so well when he, he, he tells us 
Blind unbelief is sure to err and view God's works in vain. But God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. He makes it plain here, doesn't he? Unbelief says, worst thing, tragedy, faith revealed by God shows that this is a glorious thing out of love for this boy. And that should lead us then to this challenge in the face of grief and death, because it isn't always the same answer that we find in this text, is it? This text isn't saying every time someone dies, it's because it would have been somehow worse for them to live. This text is saying God works all things for the good of those who love him. Even a young death. And if that's the case, then it challenges us. Who knows what loving and gracious ways God has chosen to guard others whom we've loved when they die, perhaps feeling, for us, untimely death. Who knows what his glorious, gracious purpose was there. We may not see it in this life. We, not be, we may not be able to sit in this life and say, well, God took this loved one of mine that year because if they had lived two more years, this tragedy would have happened. But we're shown that this is the type of thing God does. And so we ought to take comfort, comfort as the people of God in the death of those who are the children of God. Let's pray.